At the end of the previous passage in John chapter 14, which we looked at last week, we saw that Jesus promised that his disciples would do even greater things than he did. These things were, we said, the proclamation of the gospel, supported by the bold praying of the church in the name of Christ. Now, of course it was assumed in last week's text that this could only happen. This could only happen once the ascended Lord poured out the gift of the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit has not been mentioned in the discourse, the upper room discourse, this farewell discourse. It has not been referenced yet until this passage. This is the first time that Jesus makes express reference to the Spirit. He does that in verse 15. So we're going to make four points that are on the back inside page of your bulletin. And they're very closely related points. They're really four angles, four ways of looking at the mystery, the glory of the Holy Spirit's ministry in our midst. And they're scattered throughout the passage, so we won't be following in any strict order. So we'll call them advocate, truth, love, and communion. So first, advocate. This is really the main idea, the leading idea of this passage. The other three things are, could be subpoints. Jesus is going, he says, to ask the Father, and the Father will give us what the text calls another advocate, or in some translations, another counselor. So this is not a completely different advocate, but it's another advocate. Not a different advocate, per se, but another advocate. Jesus has been their advocate. right? And now Jesus is ascending, and he will send another. And another means he'll send one just like him. And so, when we think of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, without denying the difference between the Holy Spirit and Jesus the Son, right? the Holy Spirit is a kind of another Jesus to the church. Because he's the spirit of the Lord Jesus. So close is this relationship that in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul can say, the risen Lord is the spirit. If you look down in our text just a little bit, at the end of verse 18, now Jesus is talking about sending the Holy Spirit to you. He says, I will come to you. I will come to you. So thus the Spirit brings Jesus' own presence to you into the life of the church. And this this is really a miracle. It's a wonder. It's a thing which doesn't fit into any natural proportions. And it couldn't happen. It could not happen apart from the ascension. So the main point here is simple. When the Spirit comes to dwell in our hearts, Jesus comes to dwell in our hearts. Later he'll say in this discourse, it's good that I go away. And Calvin, John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, marvels at this work of the Spirit. He says, the Spirit's gift is that he can unite things that are infinitely separated in space. 
The Spirit can collapse the difference or the distance between you and the ascended Jesus and make Jesus close. So the Spirit is an advocate. This is a beautiful word full of comfort for the church. Advocate, sometimes counselor, is a word with a sort of legal ring. Jesus is our advocate in heaven, and now the Holy Spirit's our advocate, our authorized counsel on earth. You have an advocate. At its simplest, it means this. The Holy Spirit is on your side. Because he's God, but he's not just God, he's God for us. He's an advocate. He is, the rest of verse 16 puts this very tenderly, he's another advocate to help and to be with you forever. He's the living presence of God who comes alongside, indeed, within you to help. Now, this is great news. You know why this is great news? Because we need help. And we need lots of help. And we need daily help. And we need hourly help. And we need divine help. Not only that, we need the help in the deepest recesses of our being. But, I mean, exterior help, you know, exterior counsel and advice is fine. And it's necessary, and God gives gifts to people in the church to do that. But there are very few of God's people you know, who don't, at least in a basic way, know what we are supposed to do. We know, generally speaking, what we're called to be and what we're called to do. So what is the problem? Well, the problem is we lack interior power. We lack the will and the light and the fortitude and the strength and the encouragement and the constancy within Sometimes I think we really don't need any external enemies. We've got enough enemies inside, crawling around inside our own skin. Like great empires, we always collapse from within. And so, Jesus sends the Spirit to help. It's the kind of help we need, and it's in the place that we need it. So the Holy Spirit is your transcendent personal assistant. And you're in desperate need of this. He is sent to be, if you will, Jesus interior to your life. To exhort or to encourage. It's a very tender image of the Spirit's work. The Spirit does not berate the saints. He does not condemn the saints. He does not belittle the saints. He doesn't come to count up your failures. He's a helper. He has the gift of helping. He is the gift of helping. 
And so the picture of the word here is full of comfort and tenderness. It conjures up a loving parent, right? Over a young child, maybe teaching the child to read or ride a bicycle or hit a baseball. The Spirit comes and hovers over and in your life in a way that's encouraging. He's extraordinarily patient. He corrects our mistakes. He dusts us off. He understands our frailty and our weakness with the sympathy of God the Father and the mercy of the Son. The Spirit is joyful in your little victories that he helps you achieve. Ever-present, steadfast to help. This is the Advocate. From the bounty of the Father, in the name of the exalted Son, the Advocate comes to you and indeed is in you forever. Jesus does not, the text says, leave his disciples. He does not leave us as orphans. He has no fatherless or forsaken children. He has no siblings without an elder brother's presence. It's a beautiful thing. Jesus has ascended, but he comes in the person of another advocate. And then he says to the disciples, you know what this means? Because I live, you will live. Because the Spirit is the Lord and the giver of life. So that's the advocate, and that's the main banner over this text that I want us to grasp this morning. The other points, as I said, are they follow from it. The second point is truth. Truth. You know, the word advocate, of course, has this idea, right? It's sort of like lawyer, right? Advocate. It's the idea of one who publicly contends for the truth. And the advocate is called, you see this at the beginning of verse 17, the spirit of truth. I mean, how could it be other than this when Jesus told us just prior to this, we looked at it last week, I am the truth. So the Holy Spirit is the personal emissary, right? The one who acts on the authority of Jesus, the truth. And so the Holy Spirit is very passionately and deeply concerned with truth and creates that sort of person. He is not just a vague, comforting sort of aura or presence. It is very true and very important, what I said earlier, I think, the Spirit does not belittle us or berate us. But neither does he lie to or flatter us. Because he's the spirit of truth. He's the spirit of the eternal word. And for us practically in the church, it means that the word and the spirit always go hand in hand. That's why in the Reformed tradition, we've always connected these two things deeply. The written word and the Holy Spirit. If you have the Word without the Spirit, you can get a lot of dry, dull, lifeless intellectualism. If you have the Spirit without the Word, without truth, you can get a lot of blind enthusiasm. 
want the spirit and the word. We want heat and light. So, we'll learn elsewhere in this discourse. Later, Jesus will say that the spirit sanctifies you in the truth. That he guides you into all the truth. That he helps you to see that thy word, O God, is truth. And so the spirit comes as a master teacher from the master to instruct and to teach us. So in this sense, as a personal assistant, he's also a personal teacher. Look at verse 25. Verse 25, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. And here's a point we haven't made in the discourse yet, but it's important to see this. Right? This refers first and foremost to this band of disciples directly in front of Jesus. Right? The Spirit is going to enable them to preach the gospel, and eventually it's going to enable them to remember everything Jesus said, and the fruit of that is going to be the written New Testament, which you have in your hands this morning. One of the things this shows us about the Spirit and truth is that the Spirit doesn't bring new revelation. Often people think of the Spirit as whispering stuff in their ears, sort of supplementing Holy Scripture. But that's not what the Spirit does. He does nothing, he says, except bring out the fullness of what Jesus has taught. And so to receive the Holy Spirit is to receive a deep love of the truth, Because it is how we receive a deep love of Jesus, who is the truth. So, the next point is love. love. The love of God, for us, we know, goes before our love of God. We love because he first loved us. But I want to point out something here that might be counter to our instincts. Notice this. In this text, the love of God also follows our love and obedience. This is pretty palpable in the text, pretty plain and open and obvious. We heard it in the interlude, which was sung for us. Right? Notice the flow. Look at verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father to send the Spirit. Verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by the Father and the Son, and I will show myself to that sort of person. Same thought in verse 23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them. Love leads to obedience. Obedience is a sign of love for Jesus. So I could summarize this this point this way. The Spirit produces love in us, The Spirit produces love. And that love will produce obedience. And that love and obedience causes the Spirit to continually come to us again and fill us. This is not an open-ended promise that the Spirit's going to keep coming and filling your life apart from love and obedience. The Spirit produces love and obedience, and then the Spirit responds to love and obedience and fills us and continues to fill us. The Spirit has traditionally in the church been seen as the very bond of love between the Father and the Son. And thus, when the Holy Spirit comes to you, 
You can see this, for example, in Romans 5, which was the New Testament lesson this morning. When the Holy Spirit comes to you, God is pouring his love out into your hearts. Right? The very love between the Father and the Son, the love that God is, comes to you in the Spirit. And that gift of love is given to transform you. Right? There's no Christian life apart from these gifts, beloved. Right? All of the Father's eternal purposes of love, all of Jesus' obedience and agony, right? they are in vain unless this text is true. They would just be out there somewhere. But they would mean nothing to us. Right? So the Spirit comes and transforms our desires into obedient, covenant-keeping love because we desire communion with our Lord. So what's the Spirit do? Another angle on it is to put it this way. The Spirit is seeking to create, to make us to be God-centered people. God-saturated, God-absorbed, God-oriented, God-lovers. Right? Passionate keepers of the first commandment. The Spirit is God. God dwelling in us, nearer to us, more interior to us than we are to ourselves, Augustine used to say. The Spirit is closer to you than you are to yourself. He's more interior to you. And he, and he comes as God to create Lovers of God. And that brings me to the final point, which is communion. Which, again, these, all four of these points overlap and are related. This could in many ways be a summary of the other three. When we talk about communion or koinonia, fellowship, right? we are talking about what is the unique attribute of the Spirit's work. There's this great Trinitarian benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians. And it says, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father, it says the love of God, but God there is the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Notice communion is attributed as the unique work of the Spirit. The grace of the Lord, the love of God the Father, the communion of the Holy Spirit. Now, we've already seen something, right? We've seen that when the Spirit comes, Jesus comes. Right? The Spirit conducts. The Spirit mediates Jesus right into your hearts. And thus you can commune with your Savior while on earth, though he is in heaven. It's the center of the mystery of the Christian life. But as glorious as that is, that's not the full scope of the Spirit's gift. Look at verse 20. On that day, that's the day of the Spirit's coming, that's the day we live in. On that day, you will realize I'm in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. There's an intimacy here which exceeds the intimacy that can be achieved between human persons. And it can get a little complicated to follow the contours of this text. But, But let's ask the question this way. If Jesus is in us, and we are in him, and he is in the Father, wouldn't that mean that the Father is also in us? 
And verse 23, and this is very beautiful, it says just that. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Now listen, hear this. My Father will love them, and we, that is the Son and the Father, through the Holy Spirit, we will come and make our home with them. So to have the Advocate come to us, to receive the Spirit of truth, to have the love of God poured out into our hearts, is to have communion with, Interior, intimate communion with all three persons of the Godhead. I think this is often obscured from Christian existence. The Spirit dwells in you. The Son dwells in you. And we see here that the Father is in you. You are a dwelling place, a temple of the triune God. Now... It's very glorious, but perhaps it complicates the Christian life a little bit. We ought to have three unified yet distinct relationships with the God who indwells us. Right? We are always the fourth person in the room for our prayers and devotionals. We're always the fourth person in the room. God in general does not indwell us. Nor do we simply have Jesus in our hearts. Nor do we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, interior to our own being. You're a temple of the Holy Trinity. You're a temple in which three, not one, not two, three divine persons dwell. I'm not sure this finds expression much in our prayers and devotions. Perhaps it does, but as we are taught it and are aware of it, we can sort of swim with the stream better, the stream of God's revelation. There's a great little uh, book by the 17th century Puritan theologian John Owen. You can get a, a bridge paperback version of it. It's called Communion with God. It's very helpful because the book tries to move the saints from a kind of knowing God slash Jesus in general, a sort of cobbled together thing, to knowing with greater delight and clarity the triune Lord. And the the original, the Puritans were like this, the original longer title of the book brings this out. Here's the subtitle of the book. Of communion with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, each person distinctly in love, grace, and consolation. Notice that. Owen thinks you have a relationship with the Father that is distinct from your relationship with the Son. And a relationship with the Son that is distinct from your relationship with the Spirit. You don't just have a relationship with God in general. Or with Jesus. Right? And so, this, this is the chief end of man. Right? Face-to-face intimacy, but also a kind of It's not external, right? It's interior. There's a kind of indwelling that we might glorify and enjoy this God. And what this text says is that Trinitarian glory, which is your destiny, it's underway now in the gift of the Holy Spirit. But there's a little bit more. Jesus says, my Father will love them, and we will come to them. And now get this. 
We will come to them and make our home with them. This goes back to the he will be with you forever part at the beginning of the text. We'll make our home. This is the heart of the covenant. God, the triune God, at home in you, in the church. You, as a hospitable place, a house built for three divine guests, Right, you and us collectively as the place where the triune glory dwells. God is a homemaker. And you know what's really critical here and fascinating and I think helpful is that the word for home is the same word Jesus used at the very beginning of the chapter, which we used, we looked at two weeks ago, where he said this. I am going to my father's house and I am going to prepare a room or a dwelling for you. Home here is the same as dwelling there and it serves to bracket the text. So these are like brackets, big brackets by Jesus saying, like Jesus saying, the text is about a home. I'm preparing a home, an eternal home for you. And even now I'm making you my home. He's at home in us now so that we can be at home or dwell with him later. You know what this is? Really, this is just John's way of what Paul would call the already and the not yet. Right? There are not, there's not two dwelling arrangements here. There's one dwelling arrangement in two phases. Already, we are a dwelling, a room for the triune God. And Jesus is preparing for even greater, more glorious, consummated communion with us in heaven. And so the text opens back up when it uses this word of, we will make our home in you. It opens back up to that infinite horizon upon which the chapter began. And on which the Christian gazes and for which the Christian longs. This is why Paul can say when the Spirit comes into your heart, you have a down payment or a pledge of your inheritance of the coming of Jesus in glory at the end of the age. This communion brings us great peace now. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave you, leave with you. My peace I give you. This is the fruit of the communion. You know, The three persons that you have dwelling within you, they are serene. They are not turbulent people. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are immutable, calm people. That should calm us down and stabilize us, right? High Trinitarian theology, what's, what's the practical takeaway? Serenity, peace. It's at the end of this discourse where Jesus is into the, in, in, somewhat into some complicated arrangements between him and the Father and the Spirit and us and them. And he says, look, we're going to come, we're going to dwell, you're going to be our home. And after talking about the triune dwelling, it is no accident that he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. We may not understand the intricacies of this, but it is designed to create peaceful communion with the Lord in anticipation 
of the shalom of the new creation. Jesus is going to prepare a heavenly home for you. And he's coming to you in the meantime by the Spirit. They're both designed for your comfort and for your peace. And again, notice, he concludes here, he concludes just as he opened the passage, the chapter two weeks ago. Same words, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Why? Why should we not be troubled or turbulent or afraid? This is why. Because the love of God the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the communion of the Holy Spirit is with you all. Amen.